Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. My name's John, and in each episode, I go totally in-depth about an individual bird species, describing their evolutionary history, the story behind their scientific name, all these descriptive facts about them, how they breed, reproduce, their mating rituals, all kinds of awesome stuff. And I usually try to record outside. Um, Right now I'm sitting by a man-made pond in Elkins, West Virginia, in a little patch of woods. There are chickadees and blue jays and nuthatches abounding, some woodpeckers in and out. This is a spot where I usually see some golden crown kinglets, some ruby crown kinglets. And around this pond, I sometimes see the bird I'm talking about today, the belted kingfisher, Megasurl alkion. And I'll start today's episode by describing a bit about that scientific name, the myth of Alcaeon. Alcaeon was worried. Her husband, Cakes, the king of Takis, had set sail despite her apprehensions. I'm sorry, but I must consult the Oracle of Delphi, he said, brushing back her hair and kissing her forehead. I'll be fine, don't worry. Look at the sea right now. It's as calm as can be. He was right. The sea had been calm when he first set sail, with the sun shining and not a cloud in the sky. As the sails of his ship disappeared over the horizon, though, a fierce wind picked up and dark clouds blotted out the sunshine. Now, Alcon lay awake in her bed, thoughts racing through her mind. Her father was the ruler of the winds, sitting in his caves on his floating island where he kept the winds of the world locked away, releasing them at the beck and call of the gods. Was he responsible for the storm raging outside her windows now? He had never been pleased with her marrying a mortal, but still tolerated her marriage out of love for his daughter. No, he couldn't be responsible for this. Were the gods angry at her? People had often whispered about her and her husband's public displays of affection, so uncommon in her world where marriages were often arranged and husband and wife preferred the company of concubines over each other. But she and Cakes had been deeply in love, always laughing and touching. They even called each other by pet names, she calling him Zeus and him calling her Hera after the king and queen of the gods. Was that considered blasphemy? Her heart began pounding. Had Zeus sent this storm to punish them for using his name? She began to fervently pray to Hera, begging for her to bring her husband home safe. She was still praying when sleep finally took her. That night she had a terrible dream. Her husband, naked and dripping wet, appeared in front of her. 
He looked at her with mournful eyes, his tears mixing with the salt water that covered his body. I am dead, Alcayon. I'm sorry. I should have listened to you and never set sail. We were foolish and arrogant, angering Zeus with our blasphemy. As soon as I left the harbor, a great thunderbolt struck the sea and a violent storm rose up around us. As my ship sank beneath the waves, I made one last prayer to the gods that my body would find its way back to you. Goodbye, my love. With that, Alcayon jerked awake. Jumping up out of her bed, she immediately ran out the door towards the cliffs that overlooked the sea. Surely it was just a dream. She was worrying too much. Her husband was fine, probably laughing and drinking in Delphi right now. But her heart sank as she approached the ocean. She could see something bobbing. She walked right up to the edge of the cliff and looked down to the water below. There, amongst the waves, she saw the unmistakable body of her husband, face down. There were no tears. Tears were for sadness or grief. This was something else, a feeling that welled up and exploded out of her. She heard a terrible cry, like a wounded animal she did not recognize, then realized it was coming from her. She tore her clothes and beat her breasts, her mind a whirlwind. What would she do? How could she go on without him? Could she even go on just a shadow of her former self, all joy in her life washed away? Where would she go? Back to her father in his shitty little cave of winds? She looked down at the body of her husband again. No, she would not live as an empty husk. She would be with her husband one way or another. Alcan took a deep breath and stepped off the cliff. The gods had been watching Alcan closely, and Hera gasped as she watched Alcan fall to the sea below. Do something, she commanded, looking over at her husband Zeus. Zeus grunted uncommittally. Hera's eyes narrowed. You owe me. Remember the incident with the queen of Sparta and a mysterious horny swan? Zeus suddenly straightened up and began gesticulating. Fine, fine, whatever keeps you happy. I will take pity on this couple. In the name of love. He tried to kiss her, but Hera pulled away. Help this couple first, and then we can talk about making another demigod for the pantheon. She winked. Zeus smiled and waved his hand. In the sea below the cliffs of Tacus, the bodies of a man and woman rose and fell with the swells of the ocean. Slowly, though, they began to rise up out of the ocean until they floated in the air. Their bodies began to shimmer and change, their arms, legs, and bodies shrinking, even as their faces grew longer. Soon, two small blue birds flew out of the sea, chattering happily to each other and feeding each other fish. Alkion and Cakes had been transformed into kingfishers. So, if you've listened to the show before, you know I love to tell the Greek myths behind a lot of uh, bird species names, species and genus names. I wanted to tell this story because the scientific name of the bird I'm talking about today, the belted kingfisher, is Megacero Alkion. And the name Alkion obviously comes from that story. Um, it doesn't just refer to kingfishers, though. Alkion in Greek also refers to a lucky break or a bright spot amongst a difficult time. This comes from the myth also because while Zeus transformed the dead couple into kingfishers, he was still upset with them, and so he made it so that the kingfishers had to nest on the beach in the wintertime. And this is not at all based in reality on how kingfishers nest. It's just a Greek story. But obviously the beach in winter is a terrible place to make a nest. Uh, the waves wash away Alkion's eggs whenever she tries to lay them. So the gods again take pity on her. And they allow her father, who remember is the keeper of the winds, to have a 14-day period in the wintertime called the Alkion Days, where no winds blow and the kingfisher is safe to make its nest on the beach. And that's how the saying Alkion days um, in Greek um, became associated with a peaceful time or a break. 
One thing about this myth that does reflect the actual behavior of kingfishers, though, is Alcyon plunges herself into the water, and kingfishers similarly plunge themselves into the water and dive in to catch fish that they love to eat. So the genus name, Megaceryl, um, I'm kind of at a hard time saying that. It's like C-E-R-Y-L at the end, not cereal. Sometimes I have a hard time pronouncing things. Evan, if you're listening, feel free to make fun of me. Uh, mega obviously means big. And Cyril is a Latin derivative for the Greek word Kerulos, um, which is a mythical, magnificent seabird and uh, also influenced the Greek word for the kingfishers. We already talked about Alcyon for the species name. This genus, as the name implies, contains the large kingfishers of the kingfisher family. The whole kingfisher family is called Alcidinidae and contains many individuals scattered across the world in a wide variety of habitats. Some of them, such as the kookaburra in Australia, don't even eat fish. This means that there's a lot of taxonomical nuances and subfamilies within the kingfishers. I won't bore you with those details, and sometimes I kind of go over my head. So instead, we're going to focus on this amazing bird, the belted kingfisher. Now, the belted kingfisher is a very striking and awesome bird to observe. Rather than me describe it to you, um, I wanted to bring in uh, Jess, who is a Chesapeake Bay wildlife photographer and artist who has supplied a lot of amazing photos and artwork um, for the show to use as our cover art. And actually, her amazing picture of two kingfishers is the artwork of our show today. So I did a little interview with Jess, and I'll let her describe the kingfisher for you. All right, I'm here talking with Jessica Coker. She's a wildlife uh, photographer and artist of Chesapeake Bay birds and all kinds of other creatures. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on Dirty Bird Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a true honor. And you've done a lot of different drawings and photos that I've featured. I mean, the um, kinglet, ruby crown kinglet in the last episode, I had your red-bellied woodpecker drawing. Um, what kind of got you interested in like drawing birds and photographing birds in the first place? Honestly, I think my obsession with ospreys got me started. Yeah. We have an osprey pair that comes back every year and her name is Opal and her mate is Ollie. And she, I've never had such, you know, it's such a mutual respect that we both have. She'll perch right on the dock, right beside me. And she's not bothered by me. She knows my voice. So I wanted to start taking pictures. And I mean, I had an iPhone and iPhones don't really get you anywhere. So I was gifted a Canon DSLR and I just started taking pictures of Opal and her mate and her, you know, her babies. And I thought, well, you know, wildlife photography, it's fun, but it's very oversaturated. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what can I do to make wildlife a lot cooler to get people involved? So I just picked up a pencil and got a watercolor set. And I just kind of started drawing the things that I, you know, noticed outside and on my birding adventures. Well, it's a great blend. I like how you take the photos and also draw too, because like, I feel like they both 
like help each other, you know, um, and it, I can definitely see it in your photos. I really wanted to talk to Jess this time on this episode because uh, she has a magnificent drawing of two belted kingfishers. Um, that's our cover work for this episode. It'll also be on the Dirty Bird podcast Instagram page and Facebook. Um, you can also see it on uh, Jessica's Instagram um, at Coastal VA Wild. Uh, definitely check out her stuff if you're not following her already. And um, I don't know, let's dive into this, uh, Jessica. Like, do you mind just kind of describing that fierce looking female belted kingfisher that you have on the uh, left of your drawing there? Sure, yeah, I, I didn't know where this drawing was gonna go. I, because when you think of belted kingfishers, a lot of people, they aren't that lucky to get to view them. And when you see them for the first time, you know, it's, it's usually a quick glimpse and they're very elusive. You know, it's, you either, they're, they're difficult, but I love them. So I knew I wanted to do a belted kingfisher piece, but I wanted to make it really special. Um, they're not really easy to observe if you don't really know their patterns. So mm. I started with this female and it was just blank on the paper. And, you know, I thought, well, what's better than one kingfisher, you know, two, let's add a second one and let's make it, you know, a male. So just got them both on the branch and staring at one another. And it just kind of came to life. I didn't plan this drawing. It just kind of, you know, I went with it and I think it turned out okay. Yeah. I, just to talk about this female, um, belted kingfishers are a really cool bird because the females are more colorful than the males. And yeah. while your drawing is, is black and white to really highlight their details, um, you still uh, have her um, chestnut belt. Um, of course, you know, it's black and white, but you have that chestnut belt that the female has across her uh, uh, lower part of her chest. Um, and the male doesn't sport that. So the male's actually duller than the female is, um, which is a cool thing in the bird world. And she is definitely even though they each kind of have a side to the drawing, she is definitely the centerpiece. And um, uh, you do a great job with her crest. Um, she has it kind of perked up, um, displaying that awesome kingfisher crest there. Kingfishers overall have like a blue-gray body with like a white collar and then white on their underbelly. And that blue-gray is, is really uh, blends them in kind of with the water, making them difficult to see, like you said. But um, <laughs> that chattering call is kind of unmistakable. Um, and once you know these birds, they really are unmistakable. Absolutely. I always tell my friends, you're going to hear them before you see them. Um, I, I've lived on the water my entire life, so I, I see them every day. And sometimes even I can't even get a, a, a proper glimpse with my binoculars. If they catch one sudden shadow of a movement, they're gone. You know, that's it. But they do return. They have a routine. But, and I, I'm glad that you noticed the, uh, the pattern between the male and the female on here. I thought, is anybody, you know, going to notice that it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a pair. So, and I know black and white, the monochromatic look with art, it's kind of overlooked. People really prefer color, um, but they're, they're sophisticated species. You know, I think, I think this look serves them very well. And, you know, it really makes you pay attention to the detail. And even I learned something, um, they have like a white patch kind of above their eye. So, mm -hmm. When I was drawing, you know, I didn't really take notice to that, you know, even looking through a spotting scope or my binoculars. So I, le I learned something. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And you captured that well. And um, I actually later on in the episode, keep listening, folks, I will talk about why they have those white spots next to their eyes. Um, Jess, did you have any problem with the bill on these birds? Because 
I feel like they have such a, a, their bill is just so different proportionally than a lot of other birds. Well, that's a really good question. I struggled a little bit because I wanted, especially being in pencil, the graphite, you know, it's, it's a gray tone. Um, I just wanted to make sure my proportion was correct with each pose. Um, and I wanted to make the female more forward. So she definitely has the stronger side profile. So I wanted to enhance her bill and the lines and the markings and the little nostril and uh, the male, he's kind of scuffled down a little bit. He's turned a little slightly. So I guess proportionate wise, he's gonna be a little bit smaller, but it, I don't know. I don't know how I made it work, but I, I guess I got lucky. Yeah, I guess it just flowed well. Cause um, when you see a kingfisher, they're um, about the size of a robin, but they're just a lot stockier. They have kind of these plumpish bodies, their heads are really big. And then that bill is like dagger-like. If you didn't know better, you'd think they were a woodpecker or something like that. So I was just interested if, um, you know, when you were drawing it, you know, it almost seems like a, a songbird until you get to their head. Uh, but you definitely did a, did a great job on it. Um, and uh, I like how, you know, you have the breeding pair together and they're really only ever together like during the breeding season. Uh, there are loners otherwise. And you illustrate that in the drawing too, because you have them perched on, um, is it like a trumpet flower or something like that? There, I, know, I know there's some flowers in bloom. There's a butterfly. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. It's trumpet vine. And you know, like you always see them in the spring and summer, um, especially if you, you know, if you're out, out outdoors a lot. Um, and then I added the question mark butterfly. I, the question mark butterfly has no significance. I just thought it would be fun to add that on there. But mm -hmm. um, yep, on a branch with trumpet vine and just kind of enjoying their afternoon together as Mr. and Mrs. Belted Kingfisher. <laughs> And behaviorally too, it's it's great how the female is definitely the dominant one in this. She's the more colorful one. Um, you know, she's kind of in charge and the male is, his crest is down. He's just kind of sitting there off to the side. Uh, so I really liked how, how that was kind of captured. So, I mean, that's really why I kind of fell in love with this drawing and, and really wanted to use it. Uh, was there anything uh, like behavior wise, anything like that, that factored in uh, while you were doing this? Well, I, I'm not sure. I, um, I, we have a, a belted kingfisher and it's a female and she lives in the backyard and, you know, she comes back to the old osprey nest every single evening. You hear her before you see her and she's perching and, you know, she bobs her tail and sometimes she shuffles her wings and just turns left to right repeatedly. It's the cutest thing. And I just thought, I mean, I just wanted to create just the cuteness and like you said, the fierceness and just kind of make her the star of the show. And even though, and it's interesting because, you know, in the bird world, males are more colorful, their plumage is, you know, it's more noticeable than the females. But I like that this one, you know, the females of the belted kingfisher, they, you know, they're the stars of the show. And sorry, males, you know, they don't, they don't take the win for this one. <laughs> yeah, there's already enough woodpecker sporting red, right. like, come on. The, the kingfishers, the, the girls can have this one. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> well, um, I mean, thank you so much for uh, describing the kingfisher and, and representing it through your artwork here. Um, and thanks so much for letting me use so many of your amazing photographs and artwork for the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm honored. It's, it's definitely a lot of fun and I really appreciate you asking me. It's really cool. Other than uh, Instagram, is there anywhere else um, people can see your artwork and photos? I do have a 
the website and that link is on my Instagram at Coastal VA Wild. And I just made a Facebook page and it's Jessica Coker and there's a hyphen and it's Chesapeake Bay wildlife artist. Um, I figured it was time to make a Facebook page just so people can, you know, I guess view, not everybody has Instagram and just make it a little bit more accessible for everybody. Well, great. Everyone check her out. You will not be disappointed. It's, it's really awesome to see. Thank you so much, Jessica. And I look forward to doing some more stuff in the future. Yeah, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. So thanks, Jess, for coming on and talking about your artwork. Uh, check out the Dirty Bird podcast, Instagram, the Dirty Bird podcast, Facebook page. Uh, just look up at Dirty Bird podcast and uh, you'll see a lot of her artwork. Also find her at at Coastal VA Wild on Instagram. So the habitat for kingfishers, um, as their name implies, they rely largely on fish for their diet, and they're almost always found near bodies of water, such as ponds, streams, and estuaries. They seem to kind of prefer fresh water, but you can find them in brackish water and, and sometimes rarely salt water too. Um, in the breeding season, they need areas of large earthen banks where they make their nests in, and I'll talk more about that um, when I get to their breeding. Their range covers the entire United States and extends into Canada and Alaska during the breeding season, and then down south into Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean in winter. While this bird does migrate at the extreme northern and southern parts of its range, many are year-round residents across the U.S. Really what limits them staying year-round is if the water source freezes over or not where they're at. And you can look at years if they're colder than average, kingfishers are not found as far north during the winter, and if it's a warmer than average year, they will be found um, farther north. Uh, when they do migrate, males seem to travel shorter distances than, than the females do. The males are kind of more attached to areas than the females are. These birds are strong flyers, though, and sometimes they migrate great distances. And when they do that, they're sometimes blown off course in their migration, ending up in far-fung places like Hawaii, Ecuador, and sometimes even northern Europe. They can fly pretty fast, too. I read this kind of cool account from 1946 where this guy is driving his car along a stream and uh, a belted kingfisher is flying parallel to him. Um, the kingfisher kept flying just faster and faster and the guy's trying to match the kingfisher's pace and he makes it up to 45 miles an hour, but then there's a rock slide blocking the cars in his path, so he kind of has to slam on the brakes and the kingfisher just keeps going and flies off and disappears. So who knows how fast it can actually fly. The current breeding population of belted kingfishers is estimated at 1.7 million, but the population has declined by 53% since 1966. As far as the behavior of these birds, observations of wild belted kingfishers have shown that they are more active in the afternoon than in the morning. And they're not afraid of diving into cold water. In winter, they've been observed with water frozen on their feathers. They dive in, come back up, and the water just freezes to them. And they don't really seem to care. It doesn't really bother them. They're, they got a pretty good uh, waterproofing system going on. They're willing to brave the chilly water in order to get a nice meal of fish. However, they really don't like ice covering the water. And uh, if there's an area with ice on it, then, uh, you know, they need to move somewhere else. And looking at this pond right now, we've had some very cold nights in Elkins. It's cold right now. There's a very, very light snow falling, just kind of like, you know, those little speckles. 
and the pond is mostly frozen over. There is a small part of it, I think, where kind of the stream uh, lets out of it, where there is some um, opening in the, in the ice and everything. So hopefully a belted kingfisher comes and we get a recording of it. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Someone running and enjoying the day. The feeding of these birds, they use a plunge dive feeding behavior. Basically, they'll perch kind of on a stick or another structure that overlies the water and kind of sit there and look down. And the moment they see a fish they think they can get, they'll dive straight down and kind of chase after it underwater a little bit and catch it and come back up and fly up to their, uh, their little branch and eat it. Their diet is largely fish, but they'll also eat tadpoles, crayfish, frogs, snails, and small mammals. The fish they eat are usually like little minnow-sized. Um, apparently, they really like white sucker fish, I saw, but they also like sticklebacks, mummy chogs, young trout, and stone rollers. Um, interestingly, mummy chogs were the first fish in space. Look it up. Um, rarely, they'll also eat berries. Um, there's some documentation that they'll prey on other birds' nestlings, too. So these guys aren't like ospreys going after a pretty big fish. They're going after like little minnows, you know, stuff that they can easily, you know, they're about robin size, so they want stuff they can easily catch and then swallow down. There's a titmouse chirping. Not sure if he's angry at me or not, but. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Um, I also found an account in British Columbia in 2013 where a belted kingfisher was seen chasing a bat that was flying around during the day. It didn't catch the bat, but it definitely was given a good go to try to get that guy. In 2015 in Yukon, Canada, a belted kingfisher was observed perched in a tree with a water shrew in its bill. The shrew appeared to have a stab wound on its abdomen, which suggested that the belted kingfisher did kill it and didn't just, like, find it dead and scavenge it. So, I mean, they will go after little small mammals, too. If you look at kingfishers, they have this small white spot on either side of their bill right below their eyes. It's proposed that they use these eye spots um, that align with grooves in the upper mandible of their bill to guide their vision while diving towards fish. It's almost like the way someone would sight down a gun barrel, you know, like you line up that uh, part of the, the sight on the gun with down the groove of the barrel. And they kind of do this while they're sitting up on their branches. They look down, they like line it up so that they know they have a straight shot to plunge down at that fish. It's also likely that these eye spots are lined up in a way to correct for the refraction in the water. If you've ever tried to like, I don't know, spearfish from the surface or something, or tried to grab something that's in the water um, while you're on the surface, you'll know that the way something appears in the water when you're looking at it from up top, it's not actually where it is. So whatever you're looking at in the water is actually lower than how it appears. So the kingfishers have this just built into their sight. Their white spot is just aligned so that when they're looking, um, they line it up correctly so that they're aiming for how it actually is in the water, not how it would appear if you're looking from the surface. Kingfishers, like many birds, 
also possess two fovias in their eyes. Now the fovea, um, we only have one as humans, but it's kind of like the central part of the eye that we see the best out of. It get, it's where the most cones are for color vision. Um, and it's why you can see out of your peripheral vision a little bit, but you know, when you focus on something, you can see it a lot better. Um, now, if you want to hear more about um, two fovias and eyes of birds, check out my bird bods episode with uh, Kat. We talk about this a little bit. Um, one fovea in the kingfisher is towards the side of their head, and it's thought to be responsible for binocular vision, aka depth perception. Binocular, it's where like, you know, your two eyes are looking at something at once and you can see how far away it is. Um, the other fovea, though, is located on the beak side of their eye, and this visual field doesn't overlap with the other eye, meaning it's monocular vision. Interestingly, this monocular vision fovea has small, tightly packed neurons, while the binocular fovea has fewer but larger neurons. Oh my god, this wind keeps on changing. Alkion's dad is definitely fucking with me. So the monocular fovea has more precision sight and is what the kingfisher probably uses to focus on objects. The binocular fovea, however, is perfect for detecting movement in objects that are fairly close by and is likely important um, while the kingfisher plunges into the water and needs to snatch a fish that's trying to dart away. Another interesting eye adaptation of kingfishers lies with the cone receptors in their eyes. Cones are what allow animals to detect colors. We as humans have three, red, blue, and green, detecting cones. Birds, though, have much more complex cone structures. Um, one especially interesting feature of their cones is that they have so-called oil droplet complexes in their cones, where birds will have this colored spheral of lipids embedded in the cones that filter light and allow them to see a wider range of colors than we do. Kingfishers have been shown to have a high amount of red oil droplets in the cones of their eyes, and this is thought to reduce glare reflecting off the water while the kingfisher hunts. And like I said, kingfishers will usually perch on a branch or other structure that overhangs the water and look over looking for fish, but sometimes they'll also hover in the air over the water before they plunge down and catch a fish. When hunting, um, they're either perched on a swaying branch or hovering in the air, and so they use movement of their neck to keep their head steady and keep their eyes in a stable position locked on their prey. After catching a fish, tadpole, or other prey, kingfishers will find a perch and then whack their prey against it to kill it before eating. They also will bash it to knock off the spines of the fish. And then after they eat it, um, you know, the bones, if they're eating a crayfish, you know, or a crab, the shell, um, they'll regurgitate the indigestible parts back up, um, kind of similar to owl pellets. And since they feed at the top of a lengthy aquatic food chain, they can accumulate large amounts of toxins such as mercury from their prey. Ah, oh, Alkian, your dad. Okay, he's calmed down the winds a bit. Um, studies have shown that mercury decreases the amount of melanins in kingfisher feathers, causing them to actually reflect more white light and appear brighter. Uh, you might think this is like a good thing, like for a bird to appear brighter, but this isn't how they evolved and it likely interferes with their mate selection for the bird, especially for females um, who like to show off their nice chestnut belt. Um, and if their melanin is messed up by the mercury, it's not this nice chestnutty belt that they can show off.
Studies have shown that in mercury-contaminated areas, there's a skew towards female sex in nestlings, and this occurs in other birds too, like bluebirds and swallows. And this could also mess up, you know, their breeding and everything. As far as the vocalizations for this bird, they give a wide variety of calls. Most commonly heard is their rattle call, which is given in a wide variety of circumstances from close contact calls between mates to alarm calls. They also give a scream call that conveys the bird is not going to attack. For example, if a kingfisher is attacked by a rival and it doesn't want to fight back, it will give the scream call. Or if a kingfisher's mate is approaching, it may give the scream call to let its mate know that it's not going to attack and it's okay to get close. A final call it gives is a harsh call given by bachelor males to convey that they are ready to get aggressive and fight over territory. You most often hear this call in early breeding season. They also may combine scream and harsh calls together when they are trying to woo females. And as far as wooing those females, their courtship begins in early April. Males will fly overhead and dive low to the ground or water to display for the female, kind of showing, look how good I can dive. Don't you want to mate with me? Um, they then copulate next to old nesting burrow sites. Females emit warbling calls to seduce the males. They form monogamous pair bonds during the breeding season, uh, but they may find a new mate every year. Males and females establish their territory along the banks of a water source and their territory size is inversely related to the quality of the water source and abundance of fish. So like if they're in some really good, like right next to a pond that's just full of fish for them to eat, then they'll have a very small territory because they don't really need a large territory to feed. But if it's a stream where, you know, they really have to work for it, then they need a very large territory. And they'll vigorously defend their territory from intruders. They select their nest sites on highly eroded river or stream banks. They prefer near vertical bank faces that are composed of sandy soil and are vegetation free so that there's no roots or rocks that they have to dig through. They like compact soil that's not going to collapse because what they do is they dig these long burrows to make their nests in. They also will sometimes use man-made vertical surfaces such as roads, railroads, and quarries. Males select an nest site and will fly to several potential areas, probing the soil with their bill, kind of, eh, too rocky, eh, too sandy, um, and then they finally choose one to their liking. To start making their nesting burrow, kingfishers will hover next to the site and then ram into the soil with their beak. Sometimes they strike with such force that they bounce backwards and struggle to fly. Both males and females do this and will repeatedly ram the soil for a total of 60 hours of work over the course of about three days. At this point, the hole is about body length, and then they will excavate the rest of the hole by perching inside it and shoveling soil out with their bills. And while they're digging and doing this, their bills get pretty dirty, and so they'll fly down to the water and rinse them off. They dig long, upsloping tunnels that are about two meters or more in length along the riverbank. And they're upsloping so that if they flood, then the young will still have an air pocket to breathe in. 
Depending on the soil, it can take as little as three days to dig or as long as three weeks. At the end of the hole, they dig out a chamber that is about 8 to 12 inches in diameter and 6 to 7 inches high, big enough for them to kind of turn around in and to house their nestlings. Usually they don't line their nests with anything, no sticks or feathers or anything. The soil's enough. However, Audubon talks about some nests that he excavated and found twigs and feathers lining the cavity. Um, and about excavating these nests, Audubon doesn't mention it, but in my handy-dandy National Geographic book from 1933, they talk about excavating nests and getting vigorously attacked by the kingfishers that will, like, peck them with their bills. So, defend your homes, kingfishers. They deserve to get pecked. Uh, but I'm sure there were researchers and everything. What? Whatever. Still, I'm on the bird side. Um, oh. I think I keep hearing red-breasted nuthatches. I don't know if the mic is picking it up. I'm not sure if you guys can hear it, but there's a red-breasted nuthatch, which I'm super excited about. Normally, I don't really um, see them down in Elkins unless they've kind of erupted from further north. And, you know, food supply is not as good up north, so then they come a little uh, farther south or down in the valleys here. So... Maybe the belted kingfisher will show up. I don't know. And after they finally <laughs> do the arduous process of making this burrow, um, the female will lay five to eight eggs. They're described as pure white. Um, in the southern part of their breeding range, they might raise two broods, but usually it's just one brood. Both males and females incubate the eggs for a total of 22 to 24 days. After hatching, nestlings are featherless and blind and require incubation by the female uh, while the male will bring them food. Once they get feathers though, both parents will leave the nest to gather food. Nestlings will use two corners of the nest as a latrine um, and after pooping in the corner, they will use their bill to tap sand and soil off the walls and then cover their shit. Uh, so it's kind of cool, they kind of just establish a poop corner right away. <laughs> um, also, fledgling kingfishers, instead of having solid pubes, will, quote, eject their excreta, which was very liquid, out for a distance of 60 centimeters. So basically, they just, like, eject shit all over the walls of their nesting cavity, and then they use their bill to tap the shit sand down into their poop corner. Um, and... This is actually, <laughs> it sounds very gross, but it's actually kind of hygienic. Um, it exposes new clean wall and then buries the old poop. Um, it's a very interesting method of keeping the nest clean. After about 27 to 29 days um, of eating and spraying shit on the walls, the fledglings are ready to leave the nest. Captive bird studies have shown that once fledged, kingfishers don't need to be taught how to dive and catch fish by the parents. They just kind of instinctively know how to do it. Males take care of the young after fledgling. Um, this may be part of the reason why they're like more attached to an area and don't migrate as far as the females do. Males are also more likely to return to the same breeding ground year after year than females are. Lovely blue jay recording there. Not sure what species of bird that was. <laughs> So as far as the predators and parasites for these birds, they have been found in the stomach contents of red-tailed hawks, cooper's hawks, um, also mammals and snakes like to prey on their eggs and nestlings, um, and the adults too if they catch them in their nesting cavity. 
Audubon said he observed females flying into the water and acting like they were drowning to try to divert predators from raiding their nests. I haven't seen anybody else repeat this observation, but it's very interesting. Kind of reminds me of the kill deer, you know, acting like its wing is broken. Um, Ruffwing swallows have also been observed trying to take over kingfisher cavities, but I mean, they're a lot smaller than kingfishers are and usually get evicted. And belted kingfishers have historically been shot and trapped due to their tendency to raid fish from people's private ponds, uh, to raise, uh, to um, eat little fish from fish hatcheries, and also there's been kind of myths that they like to eat trout and, um, you know, ruin fly fishermen's favorite trout fishing spots. Um, fortunately, this has largely been stopped, um, but as recently as 2018, I saw that the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection in Connecticut shot 46 birds that were taking fish from taxpayer-funded fish hatcheries. Um, these included blue herons, belted kingfishers, and common mergansers. They said that nets and concrete installations would be too expensive and it was just cheaper to shoot the birds. I really don't know how this is legal under the Migratory Bird Act, but... There we go. Um, and uh, as far as I could tell, they're still doing it. So get your shit together, Connecticut. Um, these birds also tend to get a lot of parasites. Uh, they eat a lot of fish, especially freshwater fish, which have a lot of parasites. And sometimes this parasite burden can be so high as to cause mortality. In 1931, in Minnesota, there was a kingfisher that appeared emaciated and starving, but when its stomach was dissected, there were two partially digested fish in it. Noted on the di- God, that was close. Ugh. Someone get in the last of the hunting season, I guess. I hope I don't look like a deer recording a podcast. Anyway, um, on the dissection, it was noted that there were over 19 roundworms that filled up the body cavity, and there were so many that they were pushing the organs out of the way. Um, there was another account of a female kingfisher found in Maryland in 2014 that had nematodes filling the abdominal cavity and extending into the abdominal and thoracic air sacs. That's like the air sacs are part of the bird's breathing apparatus, similar to lungs and stuff. Um, again, check out the bird bods episode for uh, some info on that. Um, these nematodes had invaded the air sacs and were even laying eggs in the bird's bronchi. And this is actually part of uh, this particular species of nematode's life cycle. Um, it's similar, you may have heard of human parasites called strongyloideas and Ascarius. Um, basically, these parasites, they get into your body and they kind of find their way to your lungs and then they kind of crawl up until you cough them up and swallow them. Um, and then they kind of reproduce in your GI tract until you poop them out. But uh, it's very gross and disgusting and poor kingfishers have to deal with this. Anyway, uh, let's talk about these birds' evolution. Um, I'll preface this section um, by saying that I did find some papers talking about genetic analysis and evolutionary history of kingfishers, uh, but I didn't get a very clear picture. Um, sometimes the fossil evidence seems to conflict with the genetic evidence, um, but this is the best inference I could make. If anyone knows more about it, then please correct me on this topic. So kingfishers are part of the Afro-Aves radiation of uh, birds. These are like early ancestral birds that uh, developed in Africa, and they're responsible for groups such as owls and woodpeckers. Um, and the kingfishers branch of this Afro-Aves radiation is a group of birds called the Corcoformes. 
Um, this contains other birds called the bee eaters, rollers, motmots, I love saying that, um, and toddies. Coracoformis first evolved during the Paleocene period around 66 to 60 million years ago, somewhere in the Palearctic region, which is composed of Eurasia, North Africa, the Mediterranean. 57 million years ago, Coracoformis began to spread out and diverge into the lineages we know today. To show how widespread these birds became, a fossil of a kingfisher-like bird was found in the Green River Formation in Wyoming 40 to 50 million years ago. The Green River in Wyoming was a pretty wild place during the time these fossils were deposited. It was a subtropical climate, warm all year long with palm trees, cattails, and sycamores lining the many lakes of the region. There were crocodiles that patrolled the waters and armadillo-like mammals lumbering along the shores. Among the fossils we have found of these plants and animals is one of a bird with a large dagger-like beak that looks a lot like a kingfisher. However, this is not the individual that went on to form the belted kingfisher. It's way too early, but it just kind of shows you that these birds were successful and were spreading around. Instead, one branch of the has made it down to the rainforest of Southeast Asia, where it produced the kingfisher family. Kingfishers formed as a family around 27 to 37 million years ago. The ancestral kingfisher was likely a sit-and-wait ambush predator that was at home in warm tropical rainforests. It's not surprising that as the climate continued to warm all over the world during the Eocene period and rainforest spread, so did the kingfishers. Interestingly, Australia shows the highest species diversity for kingfishers, Usually when you see this, it suggests a species originated there. Like it makes sense if there's more types of uh, an animal in an area, you're like, oh, it's probably been there for longer. Um, however, in this case, it appears kingfishers came to Australia from Southeast Asia and just rapidly filled a lot of niches and became many separate species. There were two dispersal events from the Old World to the New World, one which formed the genus Megasurl, which the belted kingfisher is part of, and the other formed the genus Chlorosurl, which contains species such as the Amazon kingfisher and the American pygmy kingfisher. These dispersal events likely occurred across the Atlantic, as the closest relatives to our American kingfishers are African kingfishers. So, like I said, these belted kingfishers are strong flyers, and so were their ancestors. They were able to cross the whole Atlantic Ocean. Just by using one zoom tree of life, it appears that the first dispersal event gave rise to the Chlorosurl family, um, possibly around 11 million years ago. The pied kingfisher, which resides in Africa, shares a common ancestor with these mostly green-bodied kingfishers. As the name implies, chloro, kind of like chlorophyll, you know, means green. Somewhere between 10 to 4 million years ago, though, is when the common ancestor of the belted kingfisher and its close relative, the ringed kingfisher, crossed the Atlantic. The ring kingfisher looks very similar to the belted, except both males and females have chestnut coloring on their entire breast. Um, the range of the belted kingfisher and the ring kingfisher overlaps in its winter range. The ring is found in southeast Texas, down through Central America, and throughout South America. One zoom has them splitting off 3.39 million years ago. Um, so their common ancestor came to America and then they split. The relatives of this common ancestor who stayed in Africa instead of going on that wild flight across the ocean, um, they became the giant kingfisher. And the giant kingfisher first evolved about 9.8 million years ago. 
the crested kingfisher of Asia is closely related to these guys also. Um, it split off from the giant kingfisher about 3.72 million years ago. So there was a lot going on in uh, Africa with um, these species, and uh, they were kind of moving around out of Africa and becoming new species. So the common ancestor was in Africa, and then one flew across the Atlantic and diversified, one flew over to Southeast Asia and diversified. It's a bit of a complicated history, um, but just to recap in general, they first evolved as a rainforest specialist in Southeast Asia and then spread around the world. There were two dispersal events from Africa to the New World, the second of which brought the belted kingfisher. I want to wrap up, as I usually do, talking about the relationship of the belted kingfisher with Native Americans. There's lots of stories about the kingfisher. It's a very conspicuous bird, um, and Native Americans likely admired it for its fishing ability. In my osprey episode, I tell a story that features the kingfisher, and the kingfisher is definitely, like, you know, the good guy in the story, and the, and the osprey is bad, so definitely check it out. One story I have is by the Maka people. Uh, they inhabited the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, and uh, this story takes place at the very beginning of the world, where it's, where it's a different primordial state. And then the two men who change things show up. They're called Hoho Iapes um, in the Maka language. And they create all the animals and plants that we know today. As they transformed the creatures of the primordial world into the animals we know, they encountered a creature that was an adept fisherman, but also was known as a thief and wore a stolen necklace of shells. The two men transformed him into a kingfisher, and the shell necklace became the white collar on kingfishers. Another cultural story is by the Ojibwe people, who are the fifth largest population of native peoples in North America. And pre-European colonization, they inhabited a large swath of southern Canada and around the Great Lakes. The kingfisher plays a small role in the story of Winnebojo. Winnebojo is a figure that features in many other stories. And in one story, Winnebojo becomes angry with Kingfisher and tries to wring his neck. But Kingfisher ducks, and he succeeds only in hitting the back of his head, ruffling Kingfisher's feathers and giving him the crest he has today. Interestingly in this story, Winnebojo later goes on to use a Kingfisher's talon as an arrowhead to slay some water monsters. So, obviously, the Ojibwe people thought that Kingfishers possessed some kind of power. The Blackfeet people of Montana and Alberta also tell a story of how the kingfisher got its crest. Since the Blackfeet are part of the Great Plains tribes, part of their cultural practices include bestowing great eagle feather headdresses upon renowned warriors. You'll know these headdresses from any caricature of a stereotypical Native American you've seen. Um, just know that not all Native American tribes use these headdresses, and the cultural context around where they would wear them is complicated and interesting. It's not really a chief. It was usually like a warrior that did something in battle. It's, it's great to look up. For our story, though, Old Man, who is kind of a mean-spirited trickster god, and Wolf were hunting in winter when they came across otters on a frozen river. Wolf hungrily began chasing the otters, but the otters led him to a hole in the ice only they knew about and plunged into it. Wolf, unable to stop on the slippery ice, plunged into the river and died. Old Man began crying when he saw this, not because he loved Wolf, but because he was afraid of being cold and alone. A kingfisher was nearby. He was taking advantage of the hole in the ice created by the otters um, and began laughing at the old man's plight. And this laugh was likely the rattle call of the uh, kingfisher because it does sound like a laugh. The old man became angry and threw his war club at kingfisher. But kingfisher ducked and the club only grazed his head, giving him the crest. 
So that's very similar to the Ojibwe um, story. I wonder if there's, you know, some influence uh, uh, there. But uh, it's very cool that um, both of uh, these tribes have stories about how the kingfisher got their crest. And also something I want to point out in this story is that kingfisher is sitting at a hole that the otters created in the ice. Um, I talked earlier about how ice really limits where the kingfisher can stay in the wintertime. Um, I love Native American culture, how they intricately depict the nuances of animal behavior. Here, kingfisher is relying on the otters to create an ice-free place for him to fish. And there's actually evidence of of commensalism between these two species. Observers have noted that belted kingfishers will follow river otters when they forage, hoping to nab prey that they stir up. This behavior has also been noticed with other um, otter species and other kingfisher species in places like Africa. And kingfishers also had more practical ways that they were important to Native American tribes. Uh, the Red Earth Cree are reported to have eaten belted kingfishers, the Nucha Nolf of Vancouver Island would carry medicine bundles made out of belted kingfisher skins, and these were supposed to have um, helped with successful fishing trips. So these birds were important um, in a lot of different ways, um, both featuring into folklore and uh, more practical means, too. And Audubon and the kingfishers. Um, Audubon... <laughs> We all know about my love-hate relationship with Audubon. Um, he writes some interesting uh, stuff about kingfishers. He writes about how um, he tries to capture them by placing uh, nets over their nesting holes um, at night, hoping that in the morning time when they leave their nest, they'll get caught in the net, and then he can capture them and, you know, probably skin them alive. I don't know what the hell Audubon did with them. But anyway... Um, the kingfishers would just dig around the net and uh, get out, which frustrated him to no end. Um, Audubon, of course, ate some of the kingfishers he was able to catch. Um, he writes, their flesh is extremely fishy, oily, and disagreeable to the taste. On the contrary, the eggs are fine eating. <laughs> oh, Audubon. He had to skin, eat, and paint every bird he saw, I guess. But I do love his uh, drawings and pictures. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. I'm a little disappointed the uh, kingfisher never showed up. I don't blame him. There is a lot of ice on this pond. He's probably found a spot on some other river that's uh, unfrozen and uh, is gobbling up a meal of minnows right now. I'm glad we did get some other bird action around here. All those chickadees, that red-breasted nuthatch, the blue jays. I hope you guys got to hear it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, uh, found it informative, learned a lot. There were some pretty cool facts there. One thing I didn't mention, uh, which I just kind of thought of now, is the kingfisher burrows. I've um, heard them described that there are like tracks um, inside the burrows that are made by the parents kind of shuffling back and forth. Uh, and they're kind of similar to if you've ever gone cross-country skiing, the cross-country ski tracks that you go in. Uh, there's those available for the kingfishers in their burrows. So I just thought that was a kind of cool thing to think of. Well, that'll do it. Write me an email. Let me know what birds you're seeing. Send me pictures of any birds you've done or send me a voice memo uh, uh, talking about a cool birding experience you've had. I'll play it on the show. Um, thanks you guys for listening. Check out Jess's page at Coastal VA Wild. Check out my Instagram page at Dirty Bird Podcast. And as always, stay dirty, my fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. 
Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. And also, check out our theme song music video on YouTube. A cover art is done by my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. in the back and I like the New York Mets and my cowboy hat